Discover BetMGM, the betting app sports fans in the Capital Region turn to for nonstop action all winter long. Take the excitement of football, basketball, and hockey to the next level with same-game parlays, exclusive signature bets, odds boost promos, and much more. Plus, now you can sign in, place bets, and manage your cash balance under the same BetMGM account in D.C., Maryland, and Virginia. With the same username and password throughout the DMV, it's never been easier to play with the king of sportsbooks. Download the BetMGM app today. BetMGM is an authorized gaming partner of the NBA and an official sports betting partner of the NHL. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly and offer resources to help you make appropriate choices. Please gamble responsibly. BetMGM.com for terms and conditions. Must be 21 years of age or older to wager. Washington, D.C. only. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. This is Tracy V. Wilson from Stuff You Missed in History Class. The national sales event is on at your Toyota dealer, making now the perfect time to get a great deal on a dependable new car. Like a legendary Camry built for performance and available with all-wheel drive, you can count on your new Camry to get anywhere you need to go. Or check out an affordable and reliable Corolla with a trim for every lifestyle. From the hip sedan to the sporty hatchback, there's a Corolla built just for you. Check out more national sales event deals when you visit buyatoyota.com. Toyota, let's go places. You're listening to 100 Words or Less with Ray Harkins. Hello, everybody. Welcome to this podcast where we are talking about independent music, obviously. That's why you're here. That's why you were consuming this thing. And uh, I'm back from the United Kingdom. Actually, not really. I'm recording this in advance. Uh, So I'll be able to tell you about all the uh, cool stuff that happened at Outbreak Fest. But until then, I have this great episode to be giving to your ears. I have John Scarbach, or Scarbach. I'm not exactly sure how the uh, sh hits, but John played in a band called Give. He also does a really cool um, sort of publishing company. I was going to say sort of publishing. It is a publishing company called Shining Life Zine, and they've done a a lot of cool, really specific um, publications and zines and documentations of why uh, this stuff is important to them. It's important to me, and that is why I wanted to have John on. Not to mention, Give was such a good band. No longer playing, no longer existing, but uh, if you were lucky enough to catch them, I actually only, I think I only saw them twice, but the last time I saw them was at a program skate shop here in Southern California in the beautiful city of Fullerton. And if you are lucky enough to go to program for a show, please do. But uh, I remember seeing Give there. It was Given Mindset, I want to say, and Give was so good. I just love the energy they put out, uh, not to mention the, um, you know, just the, their music. It's very engaging, entertaining, and uh, not, not, not typical. And that's what I love about it. So John and I talk all about that. But you can do me a favor. Please spread the word of this podcast. Tell your friends, anybody who cares about independent music. The show has been uh, seeing a, a pretty substantial uptick as of late, and I appreciate that. That means you are all, you know, preaching the gospel of this particular podcast. You can also email the show, 100wordspodcast at gmail.com, and you can also leave ratings and reviews on Apple Podcast, and then you can also leave a star rating on Spotify. I know you hear it week in and week out if you are a regular listener of this show, but I have to mention it in every show because, you know, not every human listens to every single episode. If you do, shout out to you. I appreciate that. But, you know, you got to cast the widest net, so to speak. Anyways, um, John, it was a great chat. We actually uh, had a chat previously, and then the uh, internet demons took over and uh, unfortunately had to scrap that conversation but uh, John's a really interesting dude. He has had a, um, you know, being raised in the military, traveled a lot, um, has just always focused on being creative and being attached to the hardcore scene. And that's, uh, that's why I wanted to talk to John. So here is John, and I'll play a little bit of give as we head into the discussion. And of course, I will always tell you about what is happening next week at the very end of the episode. So here is John. Listen to the sound, listen to the sound, listen to the sound of voices 
uh, I got keyed in to give, honestly, I can't remember the first time I saw you guys. Did you, at one point, correct me if I'm wrong, you played a Sound and Fury, right? Or no? Yeah, I think we played Sound and Fury 2010, I think. Yeah, I, that was the first year that I was booking it. And I'm trying, <laughs> it's like all those years like ble- bleed into one. But I was trying to, yeah, anyways, I, I think that was the first time I actually saw you guys. And it was one of those things where, and I'm sure a lot of people had this experience in watching Give, where it's like, it's a great, you know, palate cleanser, for lack of a better term, when it's like, oh, a band that obviously doesn't sound like all the other bands that are playing on that particular show, um, even if you are, you know, touring with bands that have kind of a, a similar sonic tone or whatever. Um, did you get that feedback, I guess, kind of a lot where it was like, oh, yeah, like, it's cool, even if I maybe didn't vibe out on what you guys were doing to have a different sort of change of pace that was, you know, amidst all these other bands. Yeah. I think that people definitely said that, that it was kind of like different than what was happening at the time or like different than what they were used to or yeah. I mean, that seems like something people would definitely would have said back then. Right. Yeah. (laughs) It was like, oh yes, it's nice to be able to have, you know, something just a, a little bit left of center, so to speak. Yeah, for sure. Uh, the uh and something that i really admired from you guys as well was the you put out a lot of stuff you were very prolific during the time even though maybe internally you didn't feel like you were putting a lot out but you had a lot of music that you were you know whether it was the singles or full lengths or collections you definitely seemed like there was a a focused approach to try to release as much music as possible or was that just a byproduct of the fact that you were, you know, all writing music uh, pretty quickly? What was the, uh, I guess the, what was that part like a hard baked into the band or was that just kind of what you guys did? Yeah, I think, I mean, I was so excited to do the band and they were all writing so much. I think it just kind of happened naturally. And uh, I'm always kind of like go dueling with myself. Like, should we like, release like everything or just like release stuff and let the chips fall where they may or be like more specific and intentional and like let's only like try these like our hardest on these five songs and release those like the best of the best or just like let every like release everything and just let it you know um it was kind of like the release everything is kind of like the sonic youth approach where they kind of just like they feel like they just like let it all hang out. Like they write songs in any song, like makes a cut. I'm probably wrong there. They probably write way more than they release, but that's kind of in my head. It was like the Sonic youth approach or like the, like, um, I don't know, like something else where it was very intentional. Like we're going to release like this LP for like in four years and then try our hardest on the next batch of songs. But I, I can't remember, honestly, I think it was just like we had songs and we liked them and we just released them. So in it, we were really excited about the band in the beginning, of course, and uh, just writing songs just came easily. Right. I I like that articulation of the idea that you just wanted to, you know, put everything out there, whether good, bad, in between, didn't, didn't necessarily, I mean, it mattered, but at the same time, it was just a documentation of where the band was at at that particular point, because I do think that there are certain, you know, there are certain artists, especially within the, you know, indie rock world, whether it was, you know, they might be giants or super chunk or whatever. It's like certain bands, you know, during a stretch of their band life, they, you know, are, are releasing a record a year and you just can't even keep up with it. You're like, what? <laughs> There's another record? Like, this is wild. Yeah. Well, and then also like they'll release little tapes or like practice sessions or like just like offshoots or just like other, like everything. It just seems like anytime they stepped into a place where they recorded music and they all played together, it was just like, all right, put it out there. Which is, I, I respect, and I think that's a cool approach. I'm just uh, always kind of like, well, what's better? What's better? I don't know. Right. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> it is. it is, And I think, you know, you, prob- you guys probably learned this as you kind of went along and the different, you know, EPs and labels you were working with and stuff where it's like, oh, this, you know, this project that we're working on seems to fit better within, you know, doing an EP with them as opposed to, you know, trying to wait around for full length or whatever. Oh yeah. Well that kind of, the way that happened was we did the first record, the, um, the moonflower record ourselves, just because kind of, that's how we wanted to do. Um, we wanted to do it ourselves and kind of be in complete control and kind of didn't want to like ask around for like people to release a record or something. And then after that record came out, we kind of, 
you know, people were like, Hey, you know, if you ever want to do another record, we'd be interested. And we kind of weren't really sure because, um, like certain record labels have their own like feel and like, um, look and aesthetic to them. And we kind of wanted to, I especially wanted to stay in big control of our whole aesthetic and not get like lumped in with a bunch of other bands on a label. Um, even though I love that, you know, uh, for us, I didn't want to do that. So, um, but then once we kind of got a few uh, offers, like of friends wanted to put our record out, I thought, Oh, it might be cool if we like split things up and we do an EP here and we do an EP there and we do it like, you know, kind of mix it around where we're kind of a part of a, a bunch of labels, but not like the whole, we control the whole, you know? Right. It, it's these, you know, strategic alignments just, and I know that probably sounds a little more businessy than <laughs> you, <laughs> you were approaching it, but just these things where it's like, yes, you know, it's cool that we can work with revelation and triple B and it's like, they're all friends and all part of the, the, the same scene. So why not try to spread it across as many partners as possible? Yeah, for sure. And it was in my head, it was kind of a little bit like Wu-Tang Clan, how they released their uh, first LP. And then after that, each member got kind of a solo deal and they released like little pieces here and there on different record labels. And then again, they came back to their LP and uh, released it on their own thing. So it was just, I don't know, it's probably not comparable at all. But in my head, I kind of felt a little like that. And Wu-Tang is a huge influence. So I was like, oh, this is fucking cool. Right. (laughs) Well, and I think that that is cool when you are able to take these things that you see in other scenes or outside in the quote unquote real world and try to apply it towards whatever art you're creating. It's just like, oh, yeah, you know, I'm never going to be as cool as, you know, Ghostface Killer. But like, you know, yeah, like (laughs) we'll, we'll try to model this this out after this. Yeah, it was just a way in my head too to like extend the family like we were just expanding the family like it was all kind of like. Every, everybody was a part of Give in their own little way. Right, right. Yeah, it was like the you the inclusive nature of what you guys were doing as a band and musically, where it's like, we don't care, you know, kind of what scene you're coming from as long as you're here for it. And then that also was part of your strategy in releasing music too. Yeah. Yeah. And I... I think that hits on the idea too of the, you know, the way that the the band and you guys collectively approached it, where it, it did seem like you were trying to, you know, pull different people from different scenes, whether it was, you know, punk, hardcore, indie rock, whatever. It's like you could find an, a way into the band as opposed to, you know, just being one type of, of hardcore band, which is fine because, you know, that's where everybody kind of starts. But I, I, yeah. I'm guessing that's kind of what you saw as you were kind of continuing along. Uh, yeah. I mean, it's what I hoped for. I don't know if it appeared that way. That's really cool to hear. But um, yeah, I just inclusivity was definitely a goal for me and probably everyone else in the band and should be for most bands, I would say. But uh, yeah, it was just, I just wanted to like kind of, make everyone feel like they belonged and that they could like be a play a part in the band and kind of like nurture that creativity with everybody. So. Yeah, that's awesome. I like that. And kind of focusing on you as a person, I know that you were raised in a lot of different places as you, um, your father was in the military, right? And you moved around a lot. That's correct. Yeah. Yeah. And so most of your upbringing was, you know, kind of jump around from from base to base like were you guys actually living on the bases or were you kind of you know off off base so to speak i think we moved around about every three to four years and we lived on the base uh every single place we lived except for the last one before my father retired was uh in north carolina we lived off base because there wasn't enough room on base or something like i can't remember exactly right right and from my uh, admittedly limited knowledge of you know life on the base like you it, it's pretty insular in regards to you know you're probably just interacting with other kids of you know the military families and stuff like that you, and you don't really i guess live off the base too much or is that incorrect no i mean that's but as a kid i wasn't even aware of that like oh we're completely isolated to just these like where the, are there other kids out there it was just like the kids in my neighborhood are awesome. We play video games and ride bikes and like, it's great. I wasn't like yearning for anything or I didn't felt like trapped or isolated or anything like that. But yeah, I mean, it's weird. You kind of just stick to your, your local neighborhood. Right. 
And as you kind of started to see these different cities as you were bouncing around, um, you know, did was that difficult to, I guess, you know, make friends and sort of integrate yourselves within these different communities as you were bouncing around? Or was it uh, sort of a consistent experience because everybody else was, you know, part of that same thing as well, traveling between towns? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, I think there was a, a lot of times where, I would meet a lot of other people that weren't from like, like military children, but, uh, I loved, um, moving around. I always, I loved being the new kid all the time. It was always like exciting for me. Like I know the common like cliche is like, you know, you hate, you don't want to move schools. You hate moving away, leaving your friends. But I was always really excited to go to a new school and like be the new kid. Sure. I I guess there is that allure of, it's like, oh, hey, who, who, who's this new kid coming in? Like, you know, John, like, where, where's he from? Like, oh, oh, wow, he's lived in three different cities. Like, you can always sort of, you know, reinvent yourself in a way. Yeah, it was, I never thought of it like as a reinventing myself, but I was just mm-hmm. always excited to meet new kids and like see like what they were into, like what video games we could play together. And I don't know. Yeah, no, that's true. That's a good point. Where, uh, and your family structure, like your, I presume your mom is at home taking care of you. And did you have any siblings? Yeah, one younger brother. Okay. And were you finding yourself attracted to sports, arts, like, you know, as you were, you know, going to junior high and high school and stuff like that, where you could actually have some sort of choice and autonomy? What were you doing? Yeah, I mean, sports, like, um, throughout childhood, grew up playing sports. And then around middle school is kind of when I got into skateboarding and (laughs) everything changed. And, uh, yeah, I got, I don't even know if I would say I got into arts. I just got into being a skateboarder, really, and just kind of just like fucking off. Can you right. curse me here? Sorry if not. Oh, no, no, absolutely, for sure. Express awesome. yourself. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, and as you got into skateboarding, like who actually, you know, I guess gave you that first sort of opportunity to be like, oh, this is what skateboarding is. And, you know, here's your first deck and that sort of stuff. That was definitely in middle school, I think like fifth or sixth grade. Um, I was living in Tennessee at the time and this kid, uh, like a new kid came to school and he was from California and (laughs) it was like a big deal around the school. Everyone's like, hey, this guy, this new kid, he's from California, like California is such an exotic place and everyone's like really excited. And he was like a skateboarder. He dressed like completely different than everybody. He had like etnies on and like baggy clothes, like probably blind jeans or something and like an alien workshop shirt or something and like kind of longer hair. And everyone was really excited. And I was like, yeah, this kid, I want to be his friend. I want to meet him and talk to him. And he gave me a CCS catalog. And like, that was the end of sports for me. Right. <laughs> I, I always love those evolutions that you go through as a kid where it's like, even though you've got pretty much nothing but time as a kid, you really have to pick your lane and be like, oh yeah, that stuff that I was doing before, I don't have any time for that anymore because all I want to do is this. It's so cool. (laughs) It just, it feels like, like your role or kind of like where you're at is so defined and you cannot do these other things. When I was a kid, that's how it felt at least. I mean, it might be different now. I feel like maybe for kids now they can do whatever they want and it feels like natural, but, uh, yeah, for me, it was either like, okay, sports are done. I'm going to be a skateboarder now. I cannot play sports and I'm going to do everything that like being a skateboarder entails. So, Right, right. <laughs> Did you have hopes for, uh, you know, being a pro or semi-pro amateur, like, you know, competing in, uh, you know, events and stuff like that? Or was it just a pure, I love the culture and I want to be a part of it? Yeah, of course. I mean, being that young and getting into skateboarding, you dreamed about like, you know, skating for like a cool company and shit. Like, obviously I wanted to skate for a toy machine or something, but, uh, you know, those are like, as a kid, you dream about everything. And of course, right. I, yeah. <laughs> right. Well, what were some of the, uh, big, cause I, I imagine around that time too, you were getting into, you know, videos as well, you know, the whatever, you know, jump off the building and that sort of stuff. Like what, what videos were pretty, uh, instrumental for you as you started to navigate skate culture? Well, I mean, 411s were huge. That was like 411 is the first skate video I ever saw, and that was big and introduced me to a lot of music and shit. And, uh, but Tour Machine's Welcome to Hell is like what really like blew my head apart. Like, that was the first video I got where it seemed like someone was like, this is like what I want to be and like how I want to operate and how I want to look and what I want to listen to. Like, that was like a big deal. And I love, I love those videos too for so many reasons, including the fact that, 
it, like they were so entertaining, even if you really, frankly, didn't even care that much about skateboarding, like all of the other, you know, whatever pranks and skits and all the other things that they were doing in those videos were so much fun to watch. And like you said, just kind of really immerse you in that, that culture where it's like, oh man, I can't even skate that well, but I just want to hang out with these people. Yeah. And it, it's, at that time, Toy Machine was kind of like the pranks and shit like didn't, weren't really happening yet. It was just like all sick ass street skating and like, you know, heavy metal and punk. It was fucking awesome. Right. Yeah. <laughs> right. It's like, I can't believe that dude did a 10 stair. That's unbelievable. <laughs> um, and so as you started to, you know, become really immersed in that, I'm going to guess that that school also took a backseat and you necessarily didn't care that much about your grades or were you kind of just, you know, pardon the pun, like skating by on, you know, C's so your parents wouldn't bother you. Yeah. I mean, let me tell you, I didn't give a fuck about school for sure. (laughs) Um, the, uh, I think I was like getting like, okay grades. And then eventually like later years or start of high school, I was getting like straight F's. Like I was not going to school. I was like sleeping in every class I was skipping. Like I did not give a fuck. Right. It was just, like I, when you say that you didn't care at all, was it very much like you were going to, you know, fail all of your classes or were you getting grades that would would get you by, but definitely not excelling or applying yourself? It kind of just got worse as time went on until my parents like kind of had to talk to me and be like, hey, like if you aren't going to like get passing grades and you're going to drop out of school and just get a fucking job because, you know. So once that happened, I was like, okay, maybe I should not like, maybe I should take some of this seriously. But yeah, I wasn't like not, I wasn't even going and, uh, it was really easy not to go to school back then. (laughs) Yeah. There's the truant officers weren't chasing you down. No, for sure. Merchandise, band merchandise. These are very important things, not only to me, but to bands. So, I mean, you, if you even have been to one show, you know the spread that most bands have. So just think about rockabilia.com as the internet's merch table, okay? You will be able to find over half a million items. And before you buy anything, please use the code 100 words or less. That gets you 10% off your order. And they have so many things that are officially licensed. So that means the bands get paid. That's incredibly important, especially in this day and age of bootlegs, where, you know, some of it is totally like cool to have, but at the same time you are not giving money to the bands and that's not very supportive so rockabilia independently owned will ship from the midwest they've been in business for over 20 years and they know what they're doing trust me you can buy gifts for your friends your family i don't care what style of music you are into you will find something at rockabilia.com so please use the promo code 100 words or less it tells you that you heard about it via this show and then everybody wins rockabilia.com the only place you should buy merch online this show is sponsored by BetterHelp. we all want more time in our lives you know whether it's like dang i wish i had like another hour to you know play video games or read more or get outside or whatever it is i know myself that i actually get questions a lot in regards to this podcast how do you fit it in your day and like how do you do the interviews and all that stuff to be able to then balance the rest of my life from my work and, you know, playing in a band and I have a family, all of these things. But that is why therapy is so awesome because it helps you be able to sort out your life to focus on the things that for one really matter to you and two, try to find more time for those things that you love. That is why I love working with BetterHelp because if you need to find a therapist. They're there for you. So give them a try. It's entirely online. It's designed to be convenient for you and they can be suited to your schedule. And you fill out a brief questionnaire, matches you up with your own personal therapist. And if you do not like that experience, you can switch it. No problem. No questions asked. It's great. So learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash Ray today to get 10% off of your first month. It's an offer just for you, the listener of this podcast. That's BetterHelp.com slash Ray. And I, I'm guessing because of that, like, was there uh, tension in the home in regards to, you know, you 
kind of just not caring about school and getting into these things that your parents probably didn't have any understanding of? Or was it just like, well, John's kind of on the beat of his own drummer? Yeah, I mean, I think for sure they were really confused about like what I was doing because I didn't seem to be like care about the future at all. And um, my dad was away a lot, you know, because he was in the Air Force at the time. And so he was like TDY overseas a lot. And uh, I don't know. Yeah, there was like tension, I guess, but it was kind of more just like, what the hell are you doing? Like, you need to fucking get serious or some you're going to like be in trouble. Right. <laughs> you got to shape up or literally ship out. Yeah. What was that a, um, I guess, threat of the idea that, I mean, cause clearly being attached to the military, there's always that idea of, you know, boarding school and we'll, we'll send you off to, you know, military camp and that sort of stuff. Was that a, a threat ever imposed on you? <laughs> no, that, no, nah, that specifically, no, it was more just like, you're going to be grounded or like, we're just going to like get you out of school and you're just going to work. I don't even, I can't really remember the conversations. Maybe they were more hands-off. I don't remember, but uh, I was definitely not doing well in school for a long time. Right, right. And were, uh, was your, was your brother getting into the same stuff or were you guys on kind of separate wavelengths? No, he's five years younger. So he's a little kind of like, uh, he's removed more. And um, this was funny. I was talking to my parents recently about it. I feel like my brother never got in trouble one fucking time, like ever. And uh, he like, I, I was the one, like, I was the one that went through the wall and everything. Like, I'm the like insane kid and he's like, he's married and he has kids and I'm kind of just still floating around, like not thinking about the future. So he kind of, once he got married and had kids, he took that pressure off me. So (laughs) that's, I I just like that idea that there, you know, usually the baby of the family is, you know, spoiled. And when I say spoiled, like this is just very generically speaking, but you know, or that they, uh, you have ex- the older sibling has experienced the you know harsh punishments or whatever, and then the parents on the second second or third go around are like, oh, we'll we'll take it a little bit easier. Um, it's just funny that you felt the relief of pressure where it's like, well, they got they got one out of two that's doing the quote unquote normal life stuff. Yeah, maybe with me they were like, we don't know what the hell this guy's thinking. Like we tried, but who knows what's going to happen? Like let's concentrate on this younger one, and we'll see if we can like steer him in the right direction and. Maybe I, I haven't, I don't know, but right. Yeah. No, it's, it's tough to theorize, but yeah, I, I understand that idea where it's like, well, you know, this, this ship has sailed, like let's dedicate our resources to this because <laughs> John's, John's going to do what he's going to do, period. Yeah, exactly. Um, so then how did independent music kind of come into your, your purview? Um, I mean, I'm guessing that your parents kind of generically listened to music in the house and you were probably exposed to radio and stuff like that. Um, what was yeah. the journey there? I mean, the radio was big when I was a kid. Like we would, uh, my parents were from Tennessee. So wherever we were at, we would always drive home for holidays. And I remember in the car, like in the late eighties, it was always like, we listened to like, you know, top 40 on the radio and all that stuff was like, really, I really, really liked it. And like, I liked music. I think my first cassette tape I ever owned, I got for my birthday when I was like six was uh, Billy Joel Stormfront. And, um, then, uh after like, you know, kind of normal music like stuff throughout my life. And then like skate videos is when it really like changed with welcome to hell, like uh, misfits during Mike Maldonado's part, the, the London dungeon. Mm-hmm. That's, I got obsessed with the misfits. I got into punk and then got into metal and then eventually into hardcore. And, you know, now we're here. So. Right. Right. The, um, once you started to, you know, get on the more independent strain and then did you feel like the, I guess, rabbit holes opened up the more you were able to kind of put research into it or was the, you know, the the skate videos, basically it's like, okay, I'm going to follow this along and then whatever gets kind of presented is what I'm going to get into. Yeah, of course. Like having friends kind of point the way and like getting into hardcore and like, knowing that there's a scene, there's bands playing locally. Like you can be a part of this. You could be in a band potentially like all that shit was like kind of really like rocked my world. The, uh, I had a friend that I skated with and one day he came to uh, school and he brought a cassette tape by this band high point. Uh, we were living in North Carolina at the time. And he like told me like, this is my friend's band. Like they play shows around here. Like you should come to them. And like, 
once you kind of get into that and if you're interested it's like the sky's the limit and it was just i was definitely interested and wanted to know everything and meet everybody and so right (laughs) um what other once you started to dive deeper with your friends and everything like that what kind of uh, attracted you to those different type of bands? Like, did you, you know, was it the the more like energetic, faster bands? Because, you know, everyone kind of gravitates towards certain things, whether it's the heaviest thing or whatever. Did yeah. you notice a trend as you were kind of figuring that uh, out? Of course. <laughs> yeah. The thing that attracted me right away was fucking youth crew music, like straight edge hardcore. And this was like in 97. So this is like the height of kind of like the... Uh, revival type bands that era with like 10 yard fight and floor punch hands tied um it's like all that stuff like did a big number on me which like i'll never get over and uh it was like i would just look for albums like records or cds that had like a collegiate font a live photo of dudes like looking cool finger pointing with x's and then the title of the record like if a if a record had that then it's like okay yes i'm buying this i'm going to be into it like it's going to be great right yeah, you're like this has already been pre-vetted for me. I'm into it. Yeah, yeah. And it's like, at, now you think about like, oh, why would you want to make a record that looks like every other fucking record? But like, thank you to all the bands that did because it made the search way easier. And you know, you like, oh, Floor Punch, Twin Killing. You know, title, band, picture. Thank you. Yeah. Sick live photo, right? Exactly. <laughs> totally collegiate font. Like I, and it, it is cool when you start to notice those trends because like you said it makes it easier for you to identify bands that you'll probably be into but then it also makes it easier for you to kind of be able to you know appropriately classify bands and genres and then be able to understand how that reflects across other music and everything like that yeah the um on that same idea so you were gravitating towards you know youth crew straight edge hardcore i presume that you like claimed edge almost immediately or was that how what was that process like yeah i can't really remember honestly i I remember the, the thing i remember most was i there was one day i went skating and i was like kind of getting into hardcore a little i wasn't full blown into it yet but i was definitely like learning about things and uh i went skating with a friend and we listened to slayers the cover record i maybe is it undisputed attitude i can't remember what it's called exactly yeah i think you're right and uh I remember we listened to that, we smoked weed and we listened to that record and we were in his house and I just had this thought to myself while I was high, I was like, you know what? I'm not going to do any drugs anymore. I'm going to be straight edge and I don't like this. And yeah, and that was like late 97, I think, something like that. Nice. And so that was a cold turkey. It was just like, nah, I don't need this anymore. Yeah. Yeah. Did you... um I guess, was it difficult to kind of go away from that or was it very sort of like, yeah, that's not even part of who I am anymore. Like, you know, whether it was drinking or doing drugs or anything like that. No, I mean, I dabbled in drugs a little bit, drinking here and there, but it was never, I never really liked it. Um, And like once, like I found straight edge, especially like you get into like hands tied or floor punch or something. It's like, so like monumental. You're like, I want to look like these guys and I'm going to like believe in exactly what they like. It makes sense to me that, you know, and like doing drugs kind of never felt like completely right. So. Right. It was, it was an easy transition. I mean, at that time, like everyone's like at that age, you're like looking for like where you fit in. And like when I saw and felt all that, I was like, Oh, this is where I fit in. Right. You're like, Oh, this speaks to me. This is who I am. Yeah. It's like, obviously doing drugs sucks and uh everyone knows that and then you see like some dude looks sick as fuck in a shirt over a hoodie with an x hand you're like okay cool he's straight edge and he looks sick like okay this is exactly what i want to do <laughs> totally totally uh did you ever you know have those experiences where you were trying to I- explain straight edge to uh civilians uh, i mean this could even be obviously in your life now um you know how how do you uh <laughs> is that entertaining to uh, have those experiences um no i I probably as a kid i probably had those like conversations but i can't even remember it like in a spot now i haven't talked to anybody about like not doing like it's just uh he's like oh i don't drink like it doesn't i don't know if for like other people this is like a problem or a big conversation but it's not even a thought or like a conversation in my life it's just like you know i don't drink or i don't want that and like whatever it's not uh 
doesn't go further than that. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think that most people that press on the question are just like, wait, you so you don't drink like at all? Like it's a, it's kind of just a sort of follow up of like, oh, I don't drink, and it's like, are you are you recovering alcoholic or you uh, are you super Christian? <laughs> it's like those those little ways that people kind of commonly think of like, wait, you don't drink at all? That's weird. So yeah, no, honestly, I can't think of a situation where someone's like followed up with anything right. like, like wanted to know more. So. Totally. Totally. Well, that's good. That's good. The, um, so I'm going to guess like, as you started to probably be able to go to shows was maybe, a you know, a little bit later, uh, in regards to, you know, just being able to kind of quote unquote go off the base or just like where you were living, you probably didn't have access to shows as readily as other people did. Yeah. In North Carolina, they were few and far between. I think we would drive to Raleigh sometimes to go to shows and like Chapel Hill and like other places, like bigger cities in North Carolina. And there's also stuff happening in Fayetteville where we lived, but, um, it wasn't like, it didn't happen all the time. So when it did happen, it was like the greatest thing ever. And you'd like plan for it weeks in advance and, you know, lay out your fucking clothes and like whatever. So, um, uh, yeah, it was cool. It was exciting. Like, I think, um, being in a, like a, in the South for sure. Like being in a smaller scene, kind of appreciating every band and like every show you get is like uh, a cool experience. Sure. What were some of those early shows that kind of, you know, blew your lid off, so to speak of whether it was, I mean, the band didn't even need to be, you know, like good or notable, but just like, wow, I can't believe I got to witness that. Yeah. We, we, we drove to the, uh, to Greenville, North Carolina a lot. They had a venue called backdoor skate park. And, um, we went to a lot of shows there, like reinforcing until the day from North Carolina. Once I fell in with those guys, it was really awesome. And, uh, we saw time flies a ton at backdoor skate park and like time flies is a very like important band for me. I think probably be, I mean, they're awesome, but I think because I saw them so many times at backdoor and, uh, real early like we drove up to boston to go to 10 yard fights last show in uh october 17th 1999 obviously edge day the yep. uh and like that was a humongous deal um the band esteem from florida like played north carolina it seemed often so that was cool uh main strike and committed did a tour in 99 and uh they came through Fayetteville and that was huge. Like I loved committed and main strike. Yeah. And we talk about that tour often because the next day they played at a uh, university of Maryland. Um, and that was like a really big show for a lot of my friends here that like, and Gene that was, uh, that played drums and give, he booked that show. And, uh, it's kind of just like a cool thing. Like, Hey, I think he actually drove down to the Fayetteville show too. He said, I can't, that might be right. But, nice. But that tour yeah. was just kind of like a cool thing. Sure. I, I do love the, especially at that time where it's like, you know, the infancy of the internet and the way that you obviously found out about shows was, you know, via the rev message board or whatever the case may be, you know, flyers at record stores and stuff. It, it did feel like when a band of that nature came through, even if they weren't quote unquote, you know, big, it was still just like an event in and of itself where it's like, oh dude, I can't believe that this, you know, this, whether it's like, I, I mean, Ensign was huge out here in California, but it's just like, you know, they like, whenever they would come through, it would be such a, you know, anticipated event, like what you're talking about. Well, that was, it was crazy to me because we would go to the sh- these shows in North Carolina and they were like, you know, 50 people, a hundred, if you're lucky for like a bigger band when like Bane would come through or something. But we went to this 10 yard fight last show. We like, oh, we're driving up to Boston, going to a bigger city. Like I've never been to Boston before. And there was like so many people at the show. Like it was like all these old photos that you see where you could like stage dive endlessly onto a crowd of people. That's what it was like that. It was just so in my head, I was like, oh, okay, this is like how shows are in big cities. Like it's just like fucking hundreds of people and you can stage dive to your heart's content. There was also, we drove up to um, DC a few times and there was like some shows at St. Andrew's Church and like, uh, St. Stephen's that we went to that were kind of like the same deal where like hundreds of people were at and like we saw all these big bands. It was just great. And it was just like, okay, it's where we're from, the shows are smaller. Like we love the, our scene, but this is how it is in bigger cities. Right. You could compare and contrast and I understand it better. Yeah. When, uh, so as you were kind of soaking all this in, did you immediately want to play in bands or was it something that you kind of had to warm up to? Uh, Oh no, of course. I wanted to be in a band right away. <laughs> right. <laughs> once I once once I realized that you can do it, like, oh, you can be in a band and like play a show and it's like 
kind of easy if you, you know, try. Um, I definitely want to do it right away. Sure. And did you always want to sing or did you play guitar or try anything else? Yeah, no, I could play bass a little bit, but I always wanted to sing. I always, you know, I just wanted to like have the microphone and jump around. Right. <laughs> I love, I love these simple impulses that you have where it's just like, oh, this would be cool to like yeah. try this out. It's like, dog, I just want to X my hands and do a toe touch, you know? <laughs> totally. You're like, whether or not I can actually accomplish it, I got to try it though. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so I, I presume that Give was not your actual first band. You probably played in some other, you know, bands that maybe you didn't even record and just kind of gig around town, that sort of stuff. Yeah. When I was younger uh, in high school, we I was practiced with friends a lot and we had a band called Devoted, which was like, a, I like Committed a lot. So I was like, oh, what's similar to Committed? Like, okay, let's start a band called Devoted. And then Devoted changed into X'd Up. And um, X'd Up was actually, I think, on a flyer. We were billed on a flyer, but uh, or we were billed on a show, but the show didn't end up happening. I remember being really relieved that it didn't happen because I was like so nervous to play. Right. Then, <laughs> so you, you couldn't like you couldn't even literally bring yourself to like play a show? Well, it's like I wanted to do it and I would have done it, but like there was a little bit of relief, like, oh okay, the show was, you know, like, oh okay. Okay, I'm off the hook. Yeah. Yeah. Was there, uh, I, I guess because oh. of that, was there a nervousness to, you know, get up in front of people and like do the thing, even though you wanted to do that? Of course. I mean, there was always a little bit of stage fright, but you, you wanted to do it so bad, you're going to deal with it, you know? So, I mean, there was like a few years later, I was in a band then called Breakthrough. And that's like uh, the first like band that I was in that like recorded something and played shows and stuff. Right. Did you like uh, recording with your with that band? Uh, and then I guess kind of in general with Give, do you like recording? Yeah, recording was fun. Um, more so like doing vocals was always like frustrating because I don't like I'm not good at it. And like, I don't like the way my voice sounds. So it was kind of always a struggle to kind of like hit this perfect balance. And I'm sure <laughs> everyone else in Give can talk about how big of like a drama queen I am or whatever. But uh <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was it was fun, but also like frustrating. Sure, because I'm sure maybe some of that was you, you had a picture of what you wanted to sound like in your head, but it was difficult to actually execute that based on you know whatever limitations existed within that. Yeah, of course, like the classic scenario, right? <laughs> and I, I mean, it's difficult. I don't care how seasoned of a person you are within the context of recording in a studio it is a sterile environment and trying to get energy in a room like that is difficult and especially when you're you know yelling into a microphone and people are like hey john what did you say there did you say cat's butt there and you're like oh gosh no i did not say that yeah yeah <laughs> uh, it, it, yeah it was interesting times but i was so excited to do it especially like in the beginning that I didn't care. So discover BetMGM, the betting app sports fans in the capital region turn to for nonstop action all winter long. Take the excitement of football, basketball, and hockey to the next level with same game parlays, exclusive signature bets, odds boost promos, and much more. Plus, now you can sign in, place bets, and manage your cash balance under the same BetMGM account in DC, Maryland, and Virginia. With the same username and password throughout the DMV, it's never been easier to play with the king of sportsbooks. Download the BetMGM app today. BetMGM is an authorized gaming partner of the NBA and an official sports betting partner of the NHL. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly and offer resources to help you make appropriate choices. Please gamble responsibly. BetMGM.com for terms and conditions. Must be 21 years of age or older to wager. Washington, D.C. only. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Does sleeping hot keep you up at night? Meet the Lisa Chill Collection. These cooling mattresses work like magic with a cool-to-the-touch cover, zoned springs, and comfy foam layers. Say goodbye to restless nights and wake up refreshed. Lisa's Chill Mattresses beat the heat with ultra-cool covers that whisk away heat, so you always sleep just right. These hybrids blend up to 1,032 breathable springs and plush foams for the ultimate cooling and comfort. And the Chill Collection doesn't just feel great, it looks great, too with thoughtful design and pillowy quilt tops. No matter your budget, Lisa has a chill mattress for you. For a limited time, save up to $460 on chill mattresses and get two free pillows. 
iHeart listeners can save an extra $50 off by visiting lisa.com forward slash iHeart. That's l-e-e-s-a dot com forward slash iHeart. With Lisa, your purchase has purpose. Every year, Lisa donates thousands of mattresses to those in need. Exclusions apply. See lisa.com for more details. As you were, you know, playing shows and experiencing all this, like you said, there you weren't really operating off of the idea that you were going to, you know, get a career and do the things that, uh, you know, people do as they move through their lives from a sort of typical life path scenario. Um, is that, is that correct? Or were you basically just operating mostly off of instinct and that was kind of your, your guiding principle? Yeah, no, I mean, I'm a hardcore kid and I never thought of being in a band as a way to like have a career or make money or something. I just wanted to be in a band because music was cool and like support your local scene and stuff. Um, yeah, I, ne- I never had like ideas that it would go beyond that. Uh, like maybe we would get a play like a big show, like that would be fun. But yeah, it was never something that I thought would be long term. Right. That was basically just a, a the ability for you to travel and maybe see different parts of the country and world. Yeah. I just wanted to play cool shows. Like, I feel like that, like any hardcore kids, like that's their main dream is like, yo, I want to play a good show. Like that's all I wanted to do was play a good show where everyone was like psyched and having a good time. Right. (laughs) Did you, uh, when did you feel like you kind of accomplished that? Like, you know, when did you feel that people were paying attention to, uh, you know, most notably give, because obviously that was your most, uh, you know, prolific and longest active band. When did you feel like people kind of started to pay attention to what you were doing? Um, good question. I don't even know if they ever did. I don't like, I mean, definitely people liked give, but I think like the most important thing was like when my friends would be like, Hey, this is cool. Or like, I don't, anytime my friends kind of showed support or recognition, that's what like meant the most to me or especially like in DC when uh, it felt like we were kind of like appreciated in DC and, uh, that was like the best feeling because I mean, your local scene is like the most important. So that was just a cool, and I can't, I can't give like at a specific time or moment when that happened for me, mm-hmm. but just like anytime someone from DC or a friend, like a close friend, uh, would like express appreciation like that was really cool for me. Right. And uh, because the way that uh, Give presented yourselves in regards to, I mean, there's no interview that you have ever done where people don't mention the fact that it's like, oh, Give has flowers. Like, that's crazy, you know? (laughs) So, and that that was a a, a clear delineation that you were trying to embody with the fact that the, you know, Give didn't sound like a lot of bands that maybe were existing at the time. And then there was also a visual component. was that uh, was that basically just be like I, I really wanted to kind of hit that point home of having this you know band that didn't sound like all the other bands and then on top of it artwork that was really kind of distinct and not quote unquote traditional as it were. Yeah, I mean it's funny now. Obviously, like Give is remembered or thought of maybe as like, hey, that's like the band with flowers, or like especially when we were around, let's go, oh, that's the flower band, but it wasn't like planned out. It just kind of happened organically. Like the first record I had the idea to do um, like the letters and the flowers and like kind of, then I had the idea for the logo that our friend Luiso kind of drew up for us. And uh, after that flowers kind of became a recurring motif. And I tried to build off that with like future stuff aesthetically and like with visuals and um, yeah. It's, it's even hard for me to remember what I was like pushing back on at the time, what was happening, but, uh, it was definitely like a reaction to everything, but we were also just kind of like playing music and writing stuff that we liked at the time. So it all kind of came together and ended up as what you know of as give. So. Sure. Sure. What would you say, um, in regards to touring and like you said, with you traveling around a lot as a a kid moving from city to city, I'm guessing that touring fit your lifestyle pretty well and you enjoyed that aspect or did touring ever become kind of a, a grind for you? Oh yeah. No, touring was always something I really wanted to do too, because obviously given going back to in high school, like I didn't think about the future. So touring was kind of a way to just like be busy get out there see things meet people 
And like, I didn't have to like plan for something like, Oh, I got to be home. And like, I got to make this much money and have this job and do this. Like Tori was like, yo, let's just go and get out there. And I'll worry about, uh, like real life shit when I get home. Plus when I was in give, like that band was like my whole life, like every like creative thought, uh, like went in anytime I had a creative thought, it went into give, like I existed to do that band. And I had, cause I'd been waiting for like three years while I was in the air force to get out of the air force and come up here and do that band. So like the whole time the bit, the give existed, it was like my complete focal point for sure. Right. Yeah. You just couldn't wait. Um, and, and speaking of that deployment, so you, you were in the air force for you, three years, you said, or was that longer? Uh, six years. Six years. Yeah. Um, was that like, I guess a very simple question, like how was that process? Was it, uh, you know, difficult? Was it kind of just obviously a job as what a quote unquote civilian would encounter or what was your vibe there? Yeah. I mean, obviously I did bad in high school, so I wasn't going to go to college. And even if I want to go to college, my parents weren't going to pay for it. So I was like, well, I'll just do what I know. And that is join the air force. So I joined the air force and my first year I knew I made a mistake. Like I wasn't in, like I wasn't into it to begin with, but, uh, or before I even went in, I wasn't into it, but especially when I was in, I was like, I'm not into this. And, uh, it was kind of just like waiting to get out. And the last like three or four years I had plans to do a band here in DC with people, which became give. So it was kind of just like waiting to get out. And, uh, I would, I don't know if I regret it, but I definitely, if I could go back, I wouldn't have joined the air force. Right. Right. And did you feel like you could, I guess, stay connected to, I mean, not like a scene because clearly there's not much time for you to be able to go to shows while you're, you know, either out of the country or, you know, on active duty. Uh, how, how did you kind of, I guess, stay connected like that? Well, there are actually, I mean, while I was on active duty and like I lived in the United States and, uh, in Mississippi, Biloxi, Mississippi, I, uh, there is, it's just like any other job. I kind of, it was a nine to five kind of thing, but, um, I tried to go to shows in Mississippi and new Orleans and stuff like that, but I just didn't really like find too much. And, uh, so I would like take buses and planes up to the East coast to go to shows like all the time and go on little tours and weekends. Um, so yeah, I can't remember what your original question was. No, I was just saying like how you stayed connected to kind oh, of yeah, music. Exactly. And- I would come up to the East Coast all the time, like all the time. Got it. Because I know, I mean, there's a common conception of people in the military listening to, you know, pretty, uh, you know, aggressive butt rock music or whatever. Like, was there anybody that you met in your time in the Air Force that had any inkling of what you were talking about as far as music was concerned? No, definitely no one listened to hardcore that I met while I was in the Air Force, but uh, it didn't matter. Like I liked so many other types of music that we all like bonded over that or like any other like the type of thing, like sports or like poker or, you know, rap music or whatever. Just uh, there was enough to kind of like keep me connected and relate to other people that I could like take the trips up to the um, the East Coast and see all my friends and go to hardcore shows and stuff. Right, right. You you do seem like the type of person that can kind of, um, you know, blend into different groups of friends and different uh, types of people just based on your varied interests and kind of, you know, maybe just the the fact that you are, at least in my impression, a pretty easygoing person. Um, do you find that to be accurate or is that, am I off base? <laughs> I think that's accurate. Yeah. But plus it's also a, a thing like I don't want to just sit at home. So I might as well like meet people, learn new things and try to like appreciate what they're into and like, you know, do it together. So there was right. no one in the hardcore. So, okay, then I'll just play baseball with them or something, you know? Right. <laughs> totally. Totally. Yeah. I'll just, I'll talk to you about, you know, nineties gangster rap or whatever. It's like, whatever, <laughs> whatever you're into, I'll try to find something that I can, I know and can talk about. Yeah. Yeah. I, and it kind of along that sort of varied interest side, cause I know that you have like your musical taste is, is pretty diverse in regards to other interviews and just kind of what you're bringing to the table, uh, in regards to your influences. Uh, do you, uh, what do you kind of attribute that to? Was it just always, you were always looking for interesting music, um, and you always wanted to follow those different paths or was that because a lot of people were exposing you to a lot of different things or is it a mixture of both? Yeah, I think it's both. Um, I also like, I, uh, 
I work at joint custody and everyone there is like such huge music appreciators. So it's like kind of easy for me to feel like, man, I don't know a fucking thing about music, like coming from like a record store background. Um, but yeah, just always interested. And, uh, I got people around me that constantly recommend music. Like, you know, now that's really cool. And, uh, I don't know. It's always just fun finding new things. Yeah. And working at a record store, I think is such a, you know, gift for a many different reasons, but including the fact that, I, I mean, at least my own personal experience in working at a record store, it's like, you know, I was brought in as the kind of punk hardcore kid that you, you could, you know, I could talk about lag wagon, just like I could talk about youth of today. But then, you know, if a metalhead came in, they would talk to like my coworker or whatever. And so, but then it was cool because you sort of absorbed all those other people's tastes because they would expose you to music where it's like, dude, I never would have known about, you know, Caius or high and fire, whatever the case may be. Um, yeah. So it's just, I, I'm sure you have some experiences like that too. Oh, a hundred percent. And it's just always like the people I work with, everyone is like so music obsessed that we're always like talking about new stuff or getting excited again about stuff that we like have liked for a long time. So it's, it's really fun. Yeah. That's awesome. And as you have, you always worked at that record store or what were you kind of, uh, you know, bouncing around after you got out of the air force in regards to, you know, job and that sort of stuff? Yeah. When I got out of the air force, I moved here and I kind of, I had a lot of money saved up. So I stupidly did not work for a while and all that money went away. Sure. <laughs> but, uh, um, the drummer of give Gene, who owns joint custody with James, he, uh, his parents own, um, a guitar like business called Angela instruments. And it's like this, uh, mail order business they've had for a really long time. And I got a job there. He was lucky enough to him and his parents were lucky. I was lucky enough for them to hire me. And mm -hmm. I worked there for most of the time that I was in give. And then, um, so, uh, in the military, I had money for school. So I went to college for like the last like three years that I was in give. So like full time. Oh, nice. What did you study there? Uh, art. Okay, cool. Like it, do you forgive my ignorance, but do you actually study a specific discipline or is it just kind of a catch all art? It was kind of a catch all thing, like art history, like in you tons of different mediums, like screen printing, painting, like tons of stuff. That's cool. That's cool. Yeah. And, and I know that that, you know, directly applies to a lot of the, um, you know, things that you have been doing in regards to, I know a lot of people paid attention to, what you were doing in regards to, you know, art and installations and stuff with the, you know, turnstile tiny desk, um, NPR thing where it was like, what, what is all these stuff? Dan like, this is just so weird and out there, but so cool and a very good vibe. Uh, did you notice a lot of people, I guess, not only paying attention to that because the band, you know, is really good and obviously has a lot of heat on them. Did you notice people paying attention to what you kind of did from an installation perspective? Um, not really. I mean, obviously, I guess people would make comments on the internet and stuff, but I didn't see like too many things. But uh, it was more again, like if my friends were psyched on it, that made me feel really good. And like, a lot of my friends like expressed like appreciation for it. So that was really, really cool. And it was obviously like, just turnstile asking me to do it was really, really cool. Yeah, that's awesome. And especially too, because you could present the band in a way that, um, you know, they hadn't been presented before, not only musically, but then just the fact that when is the next time they're going to be able to play in front of a bunch of stuffed animals. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, and I know that you have, uh, you know, a large devotion for, um, you know, DC and the music scene. And I know that you have done, um, you know, kind of, uh, specific art installations and stuff like that, uh, across the city what have you, I guess, gotten out of those experiences and those, you know, installations? Because uh, especially when you're talking about, you know, museums and art, like uh, there's a large swath of people that do not interact with any of those things on a regular basis. Um, so what do, what do you get out of it besides the, the, just the simple satisfaction of being able to create? It's, I mean, for one, it's just cool to look at. And two, it's kind of like booking a show, I guess. It's, it's just another excuse to get a lot of people in a room hanging out and interacting. Like that's kind of like the main point is just, I just want to get people together, especially my friends and hang out with them and like talk to people and exchange ideas and whatnot. And uh, so doing an art installation, especially like 
putting a room together or like an exhibit or whatnot. Um, it's just another way to get people into a room, uh, hanging out. So I really like that idea of the collected spaces that you can get people in and all, you know, whether they're looking at one thing or looking at many things, but just that shared experience that I think so many people don't like think is important to their life until they experience it again, whether it's like going to a movie or whatever. It's just like, Oh yeah, like this is important. I just maybe, you know, maybe I should do it more or whatever. I'm sure you've seen that kind of reaction and experience that people uh, have articulated to you. Yeah. I mean, obviously there's like the impulse to just create something that is there, but yeah, at the end of the day, it's all just excuses to interact with people, which is like the best thing in life. So and on that topic, the idea of, you know, being an introvert versus an extrovert, you seem like you do have that desire to, you know, connect with people and meet new people and have those new experiences. Was that always part of you or was that something that has developed even more acutely over time? I think it's probably something that I've become aware of as I've gotten older. Like when I was younger, I mean, it's probably always there, but as I've gotten older, I've become more aware of how important it is to me. Right, right. That that like feels like it gives you life. Yeah. And do you have to kind of swing the opposite direction of being like, okay, I've, you know, I've <laughs> I've interacted too much with the world and I kind of gotta, you know, retreat and listen to records in my room. Oh, of course. I mean, obviously, like uh social exha- exhaustion is a real thing, and you know, a lot of times you just need to kind of chill and listen to handstand in your room alone so right right <laughs> you mean like what what you were doing before i called you yeah <laughs> uh and, and the last thing i want to ask about was the uh work that you've done with the shining life scene and the different you know publications that you've put out in regards to that uh there is a very specific lens that you are viewing these things through you know obviously within the hardcore punk world but also just the idea of the specificity of what you're doing where it's like, you know, bold summer tour journal and that sort of stuff. Um, is the idea that you want to be as specific as kind of humanly possible based off of your interests, because that's just like a cool vibe and that's kind of the, the mission statement, or is that just basically you wanting to bring these things to the world? Yeah. I mean, I think it's just like anything you want to try to help bring this to the world, stuff that doesn't, ex- that doesn't exist yet. And stuff that you're interested that I'm interested in, like it's just stuff that I would like, like that bold zine. I would want that to exist, even if I didn't do it, because it's something that I want to see and read. So, yeah, just another way to kind of like help things exist that you would like to see. Can you name a uh, project that you would love to sort of manifest, <laughs> where it's like, if I were to be able to put something out like this, that would be like the sickest thing ever. Oh yeah. I mean, plenty. I mean, obviously one of them is like the youth of today book that I've tried to get going many times, but it just kind of seems like an impossibility at this point. Um, we, it was close for a, a while there, but, uh, boiling point, like fanzine anthology would be great. Um, I really oh, yeah. want to do something like a really like thick book about like the San Diego hardcore scene would be great. Um, Memphis, like it's music history like punk and hardcore specifically from Memphis and Tennessee would be really awesome to do. Um, those are kind of the things that uh, I think about the most. Yeah, no, that's really cool. Cause then I, I do think that there is that, that hunger, especially for whether it's scenes or things that get, you know, either short shrift or overlooked. And I think hardcore in general, while yes, there are, you know, sort of mass media pieces of art that have been created around it, whether it's the American hardcore documentary or whatever, there's so many, you know, specific scenes like you've highlighted where it's like most people don't think of Memphis as a hotbed, but it's just like, oh yeah, there's a lot of stuff that happened there. And it's like, you know, you could, you could easily trace a straight line from, you know, Lucero to raid <laughs> like that. That's, that's a real thing. <laughs> yeah, I, I think it's mostly, it's just cool to see how scenes and how people interact with each other. Like just recently, Gene and I went to, uh, we drove to Louisville to kind of um, do uh, research for this article that we're going to write for Demystification Magazine. And uh, we were just like, fans and interested in the Louisville hardcore scene. And we kind of wanted to go there to talk to certain people. And it was just really cool to see 
it's just always fun to see how a scene interacts with each other, like the the dynamics between people and like what bands are popular, like what bands get swept under the rugs. Like, I don't know. It's cool. Yeah, it is cool, especially in looking at certain scenes and how certain bands, you know, again, pre-internet where it's like, they just the idea of the fact that like in point could play in front of like 500 people in Louisville is just like, what? Like, that's insane. Like how, how does that even happen? But it's just like, well, it did. And that, and like you said, this is how it happened because, you know, all these people knew each other and then it reached, you know, this critical mass or whatever. And just like being able to document that in some capacity is really cool. Yeah. agree. What, um, last thing I wanted to hit you on was the idea of what, I guess what keeps you, you know, connected to, I guess, youth culture, punk, hardcore, that sort of stuff, just because, you know, as you get older, there definitely is that idea that you, you know, most quote unquote normal people kind of tap out at a certain age or it's like, I don't need any new music anymore. I don't really need to pay attention because I got my, you know, 20 records that I'll just listen to on repeat. What keeps you engaged? I mean, it's still exciting. And I think I'm surrounded by people that are still excited with it. So it's easy to kind of still be connected and engaged. Like, yeah, I mean, I think that's it. Yeah, <laughs> plain and simple. I, I, I care because other people care and we get uh, we get each other excited about it. Yeah. Yeah, no, that's awesome. Well, John, thanks for uh, hanging out and uh, letting me ping pong around your brain. I appreciate it. Yeah, thank you so much, man. Thank you very much to John for having this conversation, not only once, but twice. I hate it when that happens, but you know, the internet and technology sometimes doesn't work for us, but thank you very much to John. And next week I have a great, great discussion with, uh, in my opinion, a very overlooked band called Smoker Fire. They were very active in kind of the early to mid 2000s, part of the whole fat record scene. But uh, as you will probably find out, uh, they didn't necessarily fit in there. And uh, I would probably put them more in the sort of Gainesville hot water music scene, but just really, really catchy punk anthemic. It just makes you want to pump your fist, kind of like a veil in a way, except the smoker fire was a little bit more uh, polished for lack of a better term. But anyways, Joe McMahon for smoker fire. That who's that who is on the show next week. That's not even a full sentence, but you get it. And if you're still listening, then you've uh, you're a very patient person. <laughs> Until then, please be safe, everybody. The show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Trust me in saying that no matter who you are, mental health challenges can affect you, and how you manage them can make all of the difference. That's why everyone should have access to mental health support that meets them where they are and helps them get through. BetterHelp provides online therapy on your schedule. It's flexible, simple to use, and more affordable than in-person therapy. Connect with a licensed therapist selected just for you. Learn more at BetterHelp.com. That's BetterHelp.com. This is Holly Fry from Stuff You Missed in History Class. The national sales event is on at your Toyota dealer, making now the perfect time to get a great deal on a dependable new SUV, like an adventure-ready RAV4. Available with all-wheel drive, your new RAV4 is built for performance on any terrain. Or check out a stylish and comfortable Highlander. With seating for up to eight passengers and available panoramic moonroof, you can sit back and enjoy the wide-open views with the whole family. Check out more national sales event deals when you visit buyatoyota.com. Toyota, let's go places. Farm to store in days, not weeks. That's 80 Acres Farms. Did you know most salads travel over 2,000 miles to reach your plate? But not 80 Acres Farms. Their crisp salad greens and herbs are food less traveled. They stay fresher for longer in your fridge. My salad lasts all week long, which means less food waste and easy meal planning. Oh, and did I mention there's zero need to wash these greens? Because 80 Acres Farms uses zero pesticides. Visit 80acresfarms.com to learn more and find their salads and salad kits at your local Harris Teeter.